and welcome to another episode of Behind the Decks. This is a Vent music podcast series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker, and presented to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. In each episode, I check in with DJs and producers from the UK and beyond. We talk all about their musical journeys, their artistry, and most importantly, the person behind the decks. My special guest for this episode of Behind the Decks is another dream guest and someone I have wanted to have on the podcast for years. Russell Small is the founder of two iconic UK house music groups and their records are ones I've spent so many hours listening to on the radio, in clubs and on my iPod throughout my life. Russell Small began life in a DJ group you may have heard of called Fats and Small. The very first record they ever put out called Turnaround in 1999 was a smash hit peaking at number two on the UK singles chart and catapulted them both into international fame and stardom. They performed on Top of the Pops four times, went on global tours and six years later Russell founded another iconic house duo called The Freemasons which would reach those heights once more with a string of hits. A lot of these came on their album Unmixed, which I believe is one of the greatest dance music albums ever made. It had singles on it like Uninvited, Watching and Love On My Mind, which still get played in clubs and on the radio today. This was accompanied by a string of iconic remixes, including work by Kelly Rowland, Beyonce's Greenlight and Beyonce's Deja Vu. The latter, they were nominated for a Grammy and Whitney Houston's Million Dollar Bill. If you haven't heard of any of those, please go and listen to them straight after this podcast. In this episode, we chart Russell's music journey from DJing in a mobile disco van around Brighton with his dad at school discos and youth clubs, right through to catapulting into stardom overnight to remixing some of the biggest artists in the world. For Russell's mental health, he lives with diagnosed ADHD, which he was only diagnosed with during the COVID-19 lockdown a couple of years ago. He was able to mask it his entire life but was labelled as a dreamer and disruptive in school and was told he wouldn't amount to anything because of the way his ADHD presented itself when he was a young person and the lack of education and stigma around the condition at the time. This is the first time Russell has ever spoken about his ADHD and I feel hugely privileged he decided to share this on the Just Checking In pod. So get yourself comfy and have a listen as I go behind the decks with Russell Small from the one, the only... Freemasons. Russell, welcome to Behind the Decks. Thank you so much for coming on and letting me check in with you. You have been a dream guest of mine ever since I started this podcast almost four years ago now. I saw you live as a student support Carl Cox almost 11 years ago now. So this feels like a very full circle moment. How are you, mate? I'm good. Yeah, really, really good. I'm just at the end of my holiday, actually, after a long summer. So I came to Croatia to wind down and thought, I'd do the interview from here. It's a little bit more relaxed. I was just in Croatia. I was just in Dubrovnik. I literally got back yesterday. So we, uh, I'm a big fan of Croatia. It's lovely, isn't it? Yeah, good weather. Good mm. weather we had. Good really weather, really nice. good people. Yeah, mm. definitely. Yeah. yeah, really, really nice. We've got a lot to talk about, Russell, and there's some things that you have never discussed before that you're going to talk about on this podcast. So I'm very grateful to you for coming on and talking about them. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show? Yes, I am. Yeah, I, I believe. 
Let's start the pod as we always do on Behind the Decks by talking about your music journey, Russell, as you've been in the game for close to 25 years now. Sorry for reminding you. Before we do that, can you just tell me how your love affair with music began? So what were some of your favourite records growing up, maybe your music idols or inspirations, and how you first got into producing and DJing? Okay, so my love of music comes from my parents. I grew up not in a musical household, but you know, because neither of my parents play instruments, nobody in my family plays instruments, but music was always on. My mum and dad had great record collections. I used to travel to my nan and granddad's every weekend. There was just music, music, music all the time. And so my brother, who is about three years older than me, he was buying records when I was, oh, you know, I was seven, eight, nine years old. And then when I was about 11, he bought a pair of turntables, a Citronic belt-driven deck and some speakers and a light. And he, he wanted to start up a mobile disco. And so, so we had this set up in the bedroom and I just couldn't leave it alone. It was just something that... You were drawn to it. <laughs> yeah, I, I was drawn to it. Yeah. And, 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 I, and I loved it. Right from the day, though, it was, you know, even in them days, it wasn't dance music. It was, no. you know, it was, every, it was everything. I mean, you know, I used to listen to Elvis musicals. Paint Your Wagon was my favourite musical uh, with Lee Marvin and Clint Eastwood. And, you know, I used to listen to ABBA, the Bay City Rollers, bit of rock, cream. My mother was into Motown and disco. And, you know, my dad was, you know, was a rocker back in the 60s. So, yeah, so there was just this vast amount of music. It was something that I could take in music. I could take in melodies. I could take in hooks. I love hooks. Ear. Yeah, yeah I, I had a good ear. I've got to say, I love a cheesy record. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> most, people, most people won't even admit that. But, you know, I do. I love, I love a catchy There's record. There's no such thing know. as a guilty pleasure. No, there isn't. I've, I've got millions of guilty pleasures. I have to say. So, yeah, so this is, I think, where the sort of the foundation for me going forward, this is where I got my musical background from. You took that mobile disco van with your dad and you drove around to various DJ bookings, youth clubs, weddings, school discos. Just take me back to this time because it feels like a very romanticised and probably happy time. What were your favourite memories? And how did it also kind of, I guess, build the relationship with you and your dad to have that shared experience? Maybe your brother Uh, as well. Yeah, I mean, I sort of robbed the equipment from my brother. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not your brother then. (laughs) I think think it it was because I was... uh, I wouldn't like to say I was a better DJ than him. (laughs) But my brother, my brother has got the most mental musical memory. I mean, when we were kids, they called him (laughs) C-Fax. Because because he spewed out all this useless information about yeah, music. I got and called he, the human jukebox at uni. I can circa attest to that. Yeah, yeah, and he, and he used to, he used to do the same. I mean, I mean, I'm pretty good, but I was pretty good until my memory started to go a little bit. But my brother is amazing, and he's still amazing now. And it's not, you know, I'm I'm more your pop and your dance music my brother is across the board he goes to see every little band every big band yeah, you know sounds he's, like me <laughs> he's, yeah he's, he's 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 forever in a concert hall or in a yeah. gig hall so i've robbed my brother's equipment <laughs> <laughs> uh, and yeah we used so i used to go youth clubs peace and football club and i played football up there 
and my dad was a vice chairman at this local Peacehaven football, gra- football ground. I became the resident there and uh, school discos, New Haven Boys Club in them days. Yeah, I used to play everywhere. I mean, I was I was earning good money. <laughs> you know, it's a cushy life in Brighton. <laughs> yeah, for, 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 for a 13, 14, 15, 16 year old kid, you know, I was doing really, really well. I mean, I, was, I had a paper round and, and I worked in a butcher's and I worked in a fish and chip shop. I had all these jobs and I had the DJing as well, which, you know, was paying well. It enabled me to buy a lot more records, a lot mm. more equipment. But I, t- I, you know, I put my money back in, into my mobile disco. And I think, you know, I carried on doing it till I was about 19, I think, 18, 18 19. I think I stopped, I stopped the mobile disco. And was that a sad was, moment? <laughs> uh, no, not really. I had to stop. Uh, it got to the stage where I couldn't, I couldn't help myself swearing on the microphone. <laughs> and, uh, and it was just, and so that was the moment I thought, you know, and I, you know, we took this was around, I suppose, 1987, six, eight, seven. And so mm-hmm. the, the music was that was when dance music was coming through. So that's what I wanted to play. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to do a half hour erection section or, you know, where, where everyone's smooching around the dance floor listening to I want to know what love is and <laughs> rock your baby yeah 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh yeah all things like that you know and I just didn't want to do that so I um, gave up the mobile disco moved into the center of Brighton I mean at the time we all used to go to the zap club in Brighton is that what digital was was when I was in uni is that what it's, that place was it's, it's the arch the arches yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. Now yeah, it's called it's, the Arch. Yeah, digital yeah, was it, it was yeah, my day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So but in its glory, it was called the Zap Club. Yeah, it, I had a few old timers in those club nights saying, "Oh, used this used to be called the Zap Club back in the day." I was like, "Oh, right." Okay. Yeah, yeah. And it was uh, it was Saturday nights was Chris Coco, wow. and people used to come from everywhere. It was one of them clubs where you you have to get picked. To go in yes it's not your night <laughs> bro it's not your yeah, night it's not mate. your night you're not you're not you're not dressed right yeah. <laughs> it's not your night tonight mate yeah yeah, yeah. with the wrong people yeah. so you know you had to go in with people that had been in before because you know you had uh, a woman laney on the door used to walk up the queue it was her job to know people so if you were with people she knew then you generally got in until you became known yes yeah and now, I, now I, it's just are you with girls if you're not you're not coming in mate yeah you're not coming in yeah so it's religiously you know i used to religiously go to this club and you know chris used to play some amazing music back in them days in the early house days and sort of rubbed off a little bit we fast forward to your mid to late 20s now where you first got into music production the likes of pete tong Carl Cox were leading the first wave of superstar DJs, shall we say, in the UK. You form a group called Fats and Small. And amazingly, and historically, your very first record wasn't just a hit, wasn't just something you could play around Brighton, but a global smash, a global phenomenon. Did you know at the time, I know everyone asks this, did you know it was a hit as you were in the studio? But did you know at the time it was a hit and it would become that big? And how surreal was that transition for you? Um, do you know what? I didn't didn't know it was going to be a hit. I mean, it was around the time of Stardust. Music sounds better. Yep. Than you. French Touch, uh, Fil- yeah, Filter House, yeah, fil- yeah whatever fil- you want to call fil- it, Filtered fil- fil- yeah. Disco, whatever yeah. you want to call it. And I had 
an idea to chop up The Glow of Love by Change, one of my favourite records. Always wanted to make a version of it. So a friend of mine, Karen, she had this boyfriend, Jason H., Jason Flats, and she said, oh, you know, why don't you go into the studio? And Jason at the time was working under his DJ Fats guys. He'd released quite a few records on Stress Records. And I took in the glow of love and, you know, and we were there and going through the record, looking for bits to loop up. You know, we came across this one bar loop and um, <laughs> I think we sat there for longer than it took to make the record, listening to the one loop. Yeah, but it was just one of them loops. You were just like, wow, this is pretty catchy loop. <laughs> and, and then we just went, we just thought, right, okay, we need a vocal. And um, Jason's record collection was on the floor. And around that time, there was this collection of acapella albums called Acapellas Anonymous, which are very rare. And they contain some amazing acapellas. So if you, ever can, if you can get your hands on the collection, definitely grab it somewhere. Because even now, to this day, it's still very hard to get the original Tony Lee acapella of Reach Up which is basically where Turnaround came from. So we put that, played it while the loop was running and same key <laughs> and basically chopped up one of the verses to make no sense at all. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Bob's your uncle, we had a record. Mm. Um, you know, the record, I think it took, oh, I think it took eight hours to make. And, you know, at the end of the day, the good thing about samples is, you know, it's a lot quicker to put a, rep, a track together using a sample. Mm. Well, Janet Jackson used the beat, didn't she, for Glow of Love? Yeah, for, yeah she did, yeah. Which is one of, yeah. the, one of my favourite records of Janet Jackson's ever. I can still yeah. play that now. So yeah. there you go. Given the fact that the dance music scene, especially in the UK, had only been around for, say, eight or nine years, how much of a crazy time was it? Because there was no social media. No evidence, basically, no smartphones and not a lot of, I guess, probably organisation either in some record labels, I would imagine. So was that part of the fun or part of the stress? Mm, um, uh, I mean, it was, it, yeah, it, was, it was so early in them days, you weren't expecting to make a lot of money because generally, I think it's probably worse than what it is today. <laughs> <laughs> um, could never expect royalties from Italy. Never. I think, don't think for the last 40 years any royalties have come out of Italy. But there's certain places you could never expect any money to come from. You know, contracts, we signed a contract for the original of Turnaround to Boo Records, which was a subsidiary of Bush Records. Yeah, and contract really wasn't worth the paper it was written on. We took some hits. <laughs> on turnaround you know i'd say that i made an amazing career but as it goes from money from the actual record we didn't make a great deal at all some listeners would probably know suspect that to be the case but a lot of listeners might be surprised because turnaround gets played i can hear that on the radio now i can go into the gym and hear turnaround so it's amazing i think for the listeners to realize that the artists who make these iconic records a lot of the time won't see the, the financial, unless you're like Noddy Holder and, and he gets the, yeah, the retirement money every year for, for Christmas. Unless you're the main writer, yes. you know, we, we used two samples. And then the record company that Bush signed it to, 
without our permission. They then didn't clear the sample, the, the Tony Lee sample properly, and they ended up with 10% of the record. And we ended up with, I think, 2% of that of wow. that 10%, which was absolutely nothing. nothing. I mean, the guy, shillings. <laughs> the guy at Unidisc in Canada who bought up all these old sample rights to all these tracks, he's the one that earned all the money. And after, I think, after five years, I think he then owned the record. Wow. So, so it's only until two years ago that we started to earn any royalties from Turnaround when Jason remade it and re-signed it to Amada. Amada. So now the last couple of years is the only time we've seen any royalties. And that version's getting played yeah. rather than the original. Yeah. Yeah. Because of the success of Turnaround, at least commercially, not financially, you went on Top of the Pops. You would go on to appear a further three times. Just tell me briefly about the first appearance and that special time, because that must have been just a, that's just a dream come true for every artist, really, it, back in the day. It was, it was surreal every single time. <laughs> we were actually on it four times in a row, and I think we even did the Christmas special, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which, is, which was fantastic. I mean, it was, um, it was at the Elstree Studios in London. which Still there. Was, as a bit former BBC, which, that's how I know. Which is now EastEnders. Yeah, and Strictly. Um, yeah. But then it was Grange Hill. Oh, wow. In the toilets that you went in the toilets, you had the little low cubicles because they were used for the school, for the kids. <laughs> <laughs> Zamo used to piss there. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, that's a but, surreal moment, yeah. yeah must, am I in the wrong place? <laughs> yeah, and it was, yeah, it was a bizarre place, but it, obviously it wasn't as glamorous as what you would think because it's just a room with cameras and they're pulling the crowd yeah. around from one stage to another and it cheer, clap, you know, and then you mime. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then it's no no good, retake, so you mime again. <laughs> so, uh, but... Yeah, when you see behind the curtain, yeah, yeah it's like but, Wizard of Oz, yeah. But as an experience, I would say it, it was pretty amazing. And also, you know, you get to meet a lot of the people that are around at that time, who are in the charts at that time. Some big artists, obviously the Christmas special, we had Cliff Richard there. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I met, um, you know, Charlene from Texas. And, and luckily, you know, Ben, who was uh, the front man for Fats and Small, he played the game. He played the whole, you know, celebrity game. He was in all, all the bars and he knew he, he, he'd been in a boy band previously called Ben's. And he knew a lot of people and he and he, and he was great at the, the whole the social. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he was good. He, he was good. So having him there to introduce you to a few people was really, really cool. Because of the success of it, at its peak, you said to me off air that you went on 380 flights in a single year, which is actually more flights than days. Many yeah. people could paint that as the superstar DJ life. But in reality, mm. was it just a recipe for burnout? Mm, yeah, it was a lot of fun. You know, you can see why so many bands make their albums and then go on tour. Yes. Because trying to make an album while you're touring is virtually impossible, <laughs> you know, and that's something that, you know, I've learned as I've got older and gone through, gone through my career. But in dance music, it, you generally make the music as you go. Yeah, because it's singles-based rather than albums. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's singles-based rather than you just make it as you go. But, mm. but, you know, if I was to do it again, I would make my music 
then tour and then you you know you you can stay up late you don't have to worry so much about going back into the studio but then we were off a flight on a flight back home in a studio off again you know mm. sometimes we were gigging three four times a week jason used to like to work at night so we were starting work at four in the afternoon and going through till six in the morning so it was all quite strenuous and stressful mm. That's literally um, flying by the seat of your pants, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and also, you know, we would we were going everywhere. We were we were getting fed whatever we wanted, which, you know, the, the whole drink thing is sort of part and parcel with the whole... It used to be. I mean, so not so much these days, I don't think. You know, when I look at DJs now, a lot of DJs are a lot more professional in, you know, they don't go quite as mad as what the DJs did in the 90s. And the early two thousands. It's more of it's a, more of a career, and obviously with that whole social media thing, you know, out there that, that you've got the spotlight on you all the time, and it's there's a lot evidence. T- a lot t- it's, it's a lot tougher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you can't you can't deny it, can you? Mm. It's there. We fast forward six years, and your DJ and production partner Jason moved on, and you formed the now iconic Freemasons with a new DJ and production partner. Given the name's association with a pretty secretive pseudo-religious group. Why did you pick this one? Um, we picked it because it was the pub at the top of my road. Because, yeah, so I, I, I used to live in Brunswick Street West, the top of my road is the Freemasons, and James and I, we had a studio in my house for about two, three years, probably. And so... The Freemasons is the pub that we used to go into to talk about things and get ideas and, you know, just and have a beer. And given the whirlwind success that you had with Turnaround, how did that help you, A, transition into the new group and B, source artists for vocal features and build that new career to the point where it is today? Because obviously you said that your front man was good at the biz. So was he good at helping establish those contacts and getting you those vocal features? Well... To be honest with you, James, the way the transformation from Fats and Small to the Freemasons was pretty organic. I mean, I got James in to help finish the last Fats and Small project. We met James through Jason, and Jason had got him in originally to help us with some production stuff. And then it got a bit hectic towards the end, and I contacted James again then to come in. And then James went off to Australia and I stopped working with Jason. And a few months later, James, I didn't know James had come back and I bumped into him in Brighton. He just moved back to England, hadn't worked out in Australia for some reason. And and I just said, oh, you know, let's go in the studio. And James had a great studio background. He worked at this studio in London for a guy called Yoshi. And it's now, I think it's Stuart Price's studio. So that's what it was originally in Acton. And James had a great studio background. So he'd worked with a lot of people already, you know, Simply Red, Judy Zook. So so he had a good contact list of people that he wanted to work with. And we picked up other singers quite organically. Amanda, um, I can't remember which dance duo, Amanda Wilson, someone recommended her 
because when we wanted a vocalist for Love of My Mind, because originally we, you know, the verse, you know, was Tina Jackie Turner. Wilson's. Oh the, yeah, 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 but, yeah, but yeah. the verse was Tina Turner, yeah, and then, yeah, yeah. then the chorus was Jackie Moore. Jackie and, Moore, uh, sorry, yeah, yeah, and um, so we got Amanda that way, and then Catherine. I think I'd heard she does a Bimbo Jones track, and I was like, wow, you know, she's got a big soulful voice. So I got in contact with her, and she she sent through about six or seven songs, and one of them, which nobody wanted, and one of them was when when you touch me. <laughs> and we we you know, we're listening to these these songs, and me and James are like, "Wow, that one's great!" And it's quite funny because um, she was in this band called Bimbo Jones, and Lee, one of the members of Bimbo Jones, he said to her a few years later, "How come you never gave us this song?" She, she said, "I did. You turned it down." <laughs> Which is all the way. Some, I just say I told you so. Yeah, yeah, some people don't. You know, you can hear things other people don't. But yeah, so it, it did, the transformation was very organic, I think. Like you said, you made those really iconic tracks. And in my opinion, the Unmixed album is one of the best dance music albums I've ever heard, in my opinion anyway. When it Thank comes you. to that era of dance music, I guess some people would call it head candy era, like the, yeah. the early oh, mid noughties. Oh. Yeah, there was some pretty, uh, well, how should we call debatable it? debatable tracks. Yeah, well, no, I was going to say tracks, dance music videos. <laughs> Eric Prince, Benny Benassi. It, yeah, it was a product of its time, wasn't it? That's the, kind of the phrase yeah, I would use. Yeah, I mean, you, you wouldn't get away with it now. Nah, the Feli no. Legrand. I mean, they were bangers, no. but yeah. Yeah, of course, yeah, you wouldn't get away with it. The Ministry of Sound were the main culprits. <laughs> <laughs> but then videos. <laughs> God, I mean, I think the Eric Prince one, didn't, was it Tony Blair who said, like, when he watched it, he fell off his chair or something? There was, like, that really famous quote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, different times. There was a head yeah, candy yeah. club in Brighton as well. I think. I think there, was. Uh, there was. A, there was. There was. There was a head candy bar at the bottom of West Street. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah West yeah. Street, iconic. Uh, it yeah, took me about yeah. a year and a half it, to remember where that street was. Sober. Yeah. Yeah. It, it didn't. It didn't last. But it didn't last very long. No. Was there a moment in Freemasons where you were able to take in all of these big moments and enjoy them, <laughs> where you probably couldn't do in Fats and Small just because of the level of touring you were doing and be present? Um, I don't think we ever got the chance to take... It's only now, really, that when you look... You know, we're talking... Looking back 15, 16, 17 years, it's only now that you look back and you're like, wow, you know, we did that. Because James and I were religiously making music. We were DJing all the time. We were in the studio all the time. You know, we were making our own records, we were making, doing remixes. You know, and even when we, we were doing these remixes and they were released, we'd see that when Beyonce got to, to number one and, and Shakira, and, but what we didn't realize was all the other countries that <laughs> it was number one in as well at the time. We, you know, we didn't, we, to be honest, we didn't really think about it. We, you know, we were just doing something that we, both enjoyed and you know we were getting to work with these iconic artists so yeah so the whole thing was just a whirlwind i want to come to discography at the end there because there's some iconic remixes you've done like you said that i really want to at least get some goss on it if not if not how are they what they did for your career when it comes to performing and producing russell given the fact that you got into music production not djing i would say comparatively late did it feel like you had to rapidly play catch up so your DJing skills matched your music production levels or not? Uh, I, 
my DJ skills are always all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know that. But <laughs> yeah, I mean... <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. But I'm just trying to say that I was lucky enough to work in everything that I've been involved in. I've been lucky enough to work with people that are amazing producers, sound designers, musicians. And so I didn't have to play catch up because I had these people as a crutch to show me the way, especially James. James James is a phenomenon. You know, he's one of the best producers I know out there, sound designers, and his attention to detail is second to none. And so I had the great honour <laughs> of being able to work with this guy. And, you know, me and James clicked, you know, we, we really had something good going. And what impact would you say that producing or DJing itself had on your mental health? Oh, um, the DJing was, you know, I, I used to drink a lot. I've got, I've got a routine before I play, which helps me calm my anxiety. Well, it has done through my career, a double espresso, a couple of shots of tequila and a pint that's of a serious beer. cocktail. <laughs> that, and that's, that's all just before I've left the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> just to, yeah, basically put my anxiety at ease a little bit. You know, I still get it. It eases off the longer I get into my mm. set, mm. but it's there evidently all the time. And if you had to say, which one out of producing, DJing or songwriting has the biggest impact on your mental health? Yeah, DJing's the biggest one. Until now, because... I'm just about to start releasing music again. And whereas before I had, James used to be more the controlling factor in the duo. He took care of a lot of stuff that now I'm, that now, that now, now I'm taking care of. And now I'm feeling that pressure, that anxiety, that, that stress from it as well, because, you know, putting out new music to the world, even though you love it, it's still, it's still quite mm-hmm. daunting, even after all the success. <laughs> but yeah, DJing is, you know, getting up there. I think I was more a natural showman when I was a kid. As you get older, it's quite daunting. Like I said, it takes me a few drinks to get the balls to get up mm-hmm. on stage. And this might be a difficult question to answer, but out of the tons and tons of sets you've done in your career, what one was the best for you and your mental health or your career, would you say? Oh... Or your favourite? Oh, there's so many favourites. You know, I wouldn't say I've got anyone. I've got places that I, I love to play. I've had amazing experiences. Like, you know, you know, we were going into Russia in the, in the early 2000s. And, you know, I was in Russia probably, you know, it, more so with the Freemasons, I think. But even with Bats and Small, we were in Russia a hell of a lot. And we did this gig on the, in the hook of Finland in, a, in this great big castle. Uh, derelict castle you know health and safety absolutely zero <laughs> <laughs> you know you, you it just wouldn't be allowed but in russia you can get health away and safety with no just you, go you, if you fall off yeah. cliff it's fine <laughs> yeah you can get away with murder so we've got this old boat traveling up the river from st petersburg to the hook of finland to get onto this castle and then all these boats bringing all these people across you know, there was about three, four, five thousand people, and we're playing in this derelict castle in the ruins with gnats 
and, and getting gnat bites while we're playing in the dark and just yeah i was getting them in croatia <laughs> uh, getting them in croatia just an amazing experience and then and at the end of the gig we got on this tugboat that took us across to land and there was this dredger coming past and you know we're all on the back of this boat and we've got our records and, you know in them days we're carting around two boxes of records each bloody 30 kilos that's each. your life's work <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh, you know and then we've seen the captain disappear inside his cabin thinking what what the hell's going on and then all of a sudden this dredger like chucked the water over the top of the boat <laughs> while we're all sitting on the back <laughs> mental mental crazy crazy place crazy mm. times and you know and there was lots of different experiences dj and you know Love Brazil, Sao Paulo. Um, oh, I've always wanted to go Brazil. Yeah, yeah. great club in you know Sydney, Mardi Gras, Sydney Mardi Gras. Mm. I think that was about I can't remember which year it was. We James and I we played at the Horden Pavilion, which is a big sh- film studio place in Sydney, uh, which is the normally the closing party for Pride in Australia or Mardi Gras. So we played there, and then two years later we were invited back and we had a float a freemasons float we had 250 dancers and all the freemasons mixes on rotation going through the parade and all these people had been sent their dance moves over the internet and all come together for that one day only and did this dance routine training around the back of the truck and we were invited on the truck and Catherine was there and Peyton was there and James and, and our girlfriends. And it was, um, yeah, it was an incredible experience. Quite humbling. Conversely, and for the listeners and maybe for any DJs or producers who are listening, was there ever any bad sets or mistakes that you made? And most importantly, what did you learn from them? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've actually been, ooh, I've never, I've, I've had sets where i thought nothing's gone right and that was the worst set i've ever played and everybody hated the music and then i've gone away and two days later ah oh, everyone loved your set and i've you know people con- and i'm like <laughs> really and then like and i and i just thought i've had them sets but i've i think the worst i've had is where i picked a needle up off the wrong deck <laughs> <laughs> well, this, is, ne- this is an interesting blend <laughs> yeah yeah but i've never been one for car crash mixes even in the early days yeah well mm. in the early days after the mobile disc jockey i i moved into a house with a load of lads they're all mixing and we were all in there with our record collections and learning how to mix and yeah it was just um working with on decks was easy in, in them days because it was the only thing that we knew i always ask this question on behind the decks russell which is about the myths and showing the realities of being a producer or DJ in this scene. So what are some of the realities that you've experienced, positive or negative, that you can share with the listeners, whether that be work-life balance, impact on relationships or friendships or, or something else entirely? I mean, being you know a DJ is amazing. I'm not going to say it's <laughs> not. I'm not going to say I haven't had the my time. My tiny of, violin. <laughs> I, I, I haven't had the time of my life yeah. because I have. But, you know, relationships is probably the toughest one to survive when you're mm-hmm. doing that level of traveling and work. I'm one of them, I get consumed in it. I mean, a lockdown for me 
was really bad, but what came out of it is a better life structure. <laughs> I've got, you know, and it was fucking a horrible time for, for mm. me personally, because relationship-wise with, with DJ, you, you, you're never there. It was always make hay while the sun shines, you know, because it will all be gone tomorrow. It seems like it's going to last forever. At some point, it's going to peter off. And you've got to be ready for that moment because it, it's tough. But it, it's a tough lot of people it, aren't. <laughs> it, it's, it's tough when it does. Um, yeah, you know, I've lost relationships, marriages. You know, I've missed sons' birthday parties, Christmases. Yeah, all the important family dates. I've missed them over the last 25 years. And now, obviously, it's, it's a lot different. It's not like it was which I'm very glad of because I don't think I would survive now. Well, some <laughs> DJs haven't, you know, Avicii and people like that. They, yeah, it, there's exactly. tragic stories of it and yeah. uh, the sacrifices are real that you have to put in and, and some people, they do that. And yeah, it's, uh, it's something that I don't think is talked about enough, but I think it's something that I try to talk about with DJs because there is a cost to everything, isn't there? And everything is yeah. a choice and a balance, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, yeah. But but at the time, it's very hard to say no to anything. You've got yes. you've got the pressures of, of a record company. You've got the pressures of a an agency who mm-hmm. uh, management who you know they're coming to you. Oh, you know, someone wants to book you here, book you there, book you there, and you say, oh no, no, you know, I want a weekend. I but they'll and they go. You go back to them and they go, oh, oh no, no, they're going to take the weekend. All right, I'll double the fee. <laughs> And you go, oh, I guess I'll do uh, yeah. it. Yeah, I guess I'll do it. You pull no, my, you pull my yeah, leg. But, no, but, that's, but, but it's quite easy to twist somebody's mm. arm when they're, when they're dangling a large carrot, mm. you know, with no concern about people. Because people don't realise what's pe- going on in people's heads. Before we reflect, I want to talk about your discography briefly because we've touched on a lot of it already. But with the remixes especially, the listeners will know that you might have done remixes for Beyonce, Shakira, also Kelly Rowland. This will be the most basic question of the podcast, but what was it like to work with them and just to have that on your resume? Give, I mean, Kelly Rowland and Beyonce and Shakira were big back then, but Beyonce and Kelly Rowland, or Beyonce especially, I mean, she is literally the biggest artist in the world, bar none. Yeah. I mean, Taylor Swift, oh, maybe, but yeah. Oh, God, yeah, 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 she is, yeah. Yeah, without a, shadow, without a shadow of a doubt, yeah. She's, yeah, she is huge. And it was quite a mad experience when we got asked to do it. We've, you know, never met her, never even talked to her, but we have spoken with her father. Oh, wow, okay, who yeah, guess there's that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we spoke with her father, you know. <laughs> we got to the sperm. <laughs> <laughs> Did you at least get to uh, talk with Kelly Rowland, or was it agency and PR as well for that? No, we, no with Kelly Rowland, we had the chance to, but she came in and wrote a track with us that never got released. Oh, um, well, there you go, that's a gem with, for the podcast. With, with, but she recorded it with Biff Stannard. Because uh, we did a lot of stuff. We wrote uh, Kylie track with Biff as well. And yeah, we, we had a good relationship with him. You know, he's a great, great songwriter, did all the Spice Girls stuff and, and the Kylie stuff. So um, yeah, so Biff had Kelly Rowland in and we were off doing a gig somewhere. So we didn't get the chance to meet her when she was in Brighton, which was a shame, really. It would have been good for us 
to have been there. But with Beyonce, we had a five-way call with her <laughs> father and about three other, I think, Sony executives and, and Marjorie, the telephone operator, and all in different states in, in America. You know, saying, "Hey, yeah, you know, we we gotta have a Freemasons remix and, I, and all that, and all of this." But yeah, but it was great time. I mean, you know, we ended up doing three Beyonce tracks. I mean, they stopped coming in for us when we turned down Single Ladies uh-huh. uh, because we said it was said it was a nursery rhyme. Well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. well, no, <laughs> that no, will do it. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, because it didn't speed up well. It didn't speed up well. It was, all the single ladies, all the single yeah, ladies. Yeah, that would sound great. It's like, you know, it's like, what are you going to do with that? Especially speeding up with Beyonce's vibrato. It's got such a natural vibrato on her voice. How'd you add like piano house to that as well? Like, or any sort of, sort of house yeah, element? It, yeah. Not, yeah, yeah. Very it, hard it, to it do. Just, it just didn't work. I think, I think they did get dance mixes, but I don't think anyone played them. Everyone played the original of that track. Yeah. Well, when everyone plays the Kelly Rowland Freemasons remix, whenever you hear it, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which is a nice. testament to you, to, which is great, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a fun one to do as well because for us, you know, we got it and and we never actually made. Uh, I think it's about 112 BPM, mm-hmm. 113 BPM. I think it is. So we couldn't speed it up. So, you know, I think everyone was expecting us to do it at 126, 127, 128. I think the other remix max. Stanner, I think, did the remix, you know, and we spoke to him and he was like, you know, I thought I'd done an amazing job on this remix. And he said, and then they played me yours. <laughs> <laughs> and he did. He did a great, great job at it. It was just, it was just that mix, Kelly Rowland mix. We did something completely different to what we normally do. And it paid off for us. Let's reflect on your 25-year music journey then, Russell. So first of all, what has been your proudest achievement, do you think? Um, my actual proudest achievement is not musical. It's my son. <laughs> I have to say, when I look back now, obviously I'm proud of everything that you make, but my proudest achievement is making the son. And what has this journey, music journey specifically, taught you about yourself, do you think? Um, it's taught me that I'm complicated. <laughs> Aren't we all? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's taught me that I'm complicated. Um, oh, that's a tough one for me. Um, I'm a better person than when I started. I can honestly say that. It's taught me not to trust everyone. The music business is uh, Wild West. Still. Um, <laughs> it still is, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, you know, mm. it's... It's probably worse now, actually. You know, you're, you're, you're being theft by stealth. Is <laughs> what I would call Spotify. Shillings you get paid in. <laughs> yeah, shilling, shillings. Literal shillings. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, the music industry is not to trust everyone. Be prepared for the end. <laughs> Don't think it's all going to be a bed of roses, so to speak. It's going to be tough. If you want something bad enough, you're going to have to give up a lot to get it. We talked all about Russell, the DJ, producer, house music icon, perhaps. Let's go behind the decks and talk about your own mental health journey, Russell. So firstly, 
I ask all my special guests this question on this topic first. Take me back to early life, childhood, teenagers, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Russell we meet here? Mm, my early days, I was... Oh, trouble. <laughs> Naughty, a daydreamer, so I was told anyway. My severe learning difficulties, I would say. Obviously, only the things that I was interested in. I think there's probably one or two subjects, I think history and cooking, I think it was. <laughs> I think he would end up bunking off the cooking. <laughs> I think everyone did, to be honest. <laughs> Yeah, so, um, yeah, I was always had problems with reading, writing. Even worse when I was at junior school, you know, and I'm a left-hander. So am I. And they were making me write with, write with my right hand. Back in those all, days, was it? All through, yeah. yeah, all through junior school, yeah. Which So for someone who couldn't read and write really anyway, using your other hand was mm. a fucking nightmare. Mm. absolutely that, yeah. thankfully i went to school when i wasn't told that but you still got a little bit of the stigma you still got called cack-handed and all that sort of stuff yeah of course yeah, yeah 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 of course yeah yeah exactly but yeah yeah i was put on a a brave persona mm. i suppose um one of the lads mm -hmm. that kind of thing when uh, you know there was issues inside that were going unresolved where i just didn't even you know didn't even know what it was in them days Mm. All so you're not aware of it you can't deal with yeah, it no you know I mean? no that's it's, that's exactly it so um yeah yeah that was that was me in my teens and before i mean even as even as a kid you know i i used to run everywhere i mean i had so you're, much your kids used so, to, used to so run much there's, energy, there's a frank skinner energy, joke about that any <laughs> school back all, yeah. all the all the time run to the shops <laughs> past your mate who's also running see you later mate see you later yeah life was a race yeah it was and I, lo I loved it in them days. He loved <laughs> running. I can't, can't stand running now. <laughs> <laughs> the experiences you describe and the symptoms that you describe, Russell, lead to the main part of your mental health journey you wanted to talk about and talk about for the first time, which is your diagnosis of ADHD. So as you mm. said, those symptoms of not being able to focus in school, hyper-focusing on a couple of subjects you excelled in because you enjoyed them, that's a common trait I've found in the lads and the women who, have, who I've interviewed with ADHD. So how did that impact your mental health as a teenager and then also as an adult as well? So obviously never had a diagnosis until very late in life. Didn't really know that I had Mm -hmm. anything wrong I just thought I was a little bit a little bit mental mm. I would say a little bit mad drinking and taking mm -hmm. drugs helped escapism yeah hell of a lot yeah yeah mm. it, you know you know I was started taking speed went in probably 14 didn't take ecstasy till I was 20 though <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I deserve a pat on the back or what what, what what I deserve for it. But yeah, you know, drinking and drugs always helped. A bit of the madness calmed it down. One reason you were cautious about talking about this, mate, is you and I think I agree with you as well, is is the trivialization of a lot of mental health conditions now when people say I'm a bit insert mental yeah. health condition here, yeah. ADHD, O C D, whatever it is. Yeah. So did that increase the stigma you felt because you'd think people, because of these other people who were misusing it, 
they wouldn't believe the legitimacy of how severe your ADHD is and was. Yeah, to, to be honest with you, I always thought ADHD was just a hyperactive, naughty person. That was my understanding of ADHD, you know, in my early 20s, teens. The mention of ADHD was, you know, the hyperactive child. Stop giving them Coca-Cola and, and mm. E-numbers and, you know, and they'll, and they'll be all right. That was the thing. And so I'd never even thought that I had ADHD. I just knew there were things that weren't right inside me, in my brain that nobody else was experiencing this. I was a little bit nuts. So I had all this stuff going on in my head, which I thought no one, no one else. There's no way people could be going through what I'm going through. So I hid it. That whole Jack the Lad sort of thing, mm -hmm. bravado thing is probably the easiest way of protecting yourself. And also I found trying to be funny is always a good one. It's just sort of a deflection. I didn't know this, but, you know, obviously these are things that I was doing to deflect yeah. away from myself. I think for lads who have got ADHD, it's very hard to mask the behaviours because it's quite loud in how it presents. So if you get told you're a troublemaker or a disruptor and you don't know you have ADHD, but that is a big reason for it. Do you think you kind of, you just lived up to that and played up to that just to... Yeah, 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 yeah. right the way through school. I couldn't learn. I didn't know why I couldn't learn, but revision and, and working at home and it's just, yeah. You know, I just take a look at it and it was just like, oh, just a load of mumbo jumbo. Looking at algebra, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I don't know where to start. Um, <laughs> X uh, equals two. I need some riddling just yeah. to understand that. <laughs> yeah. I, I went through school copying off the person next to me. One symptom of ADHD, some people would call it an ability, I don't know if I have an opinion on this, is hyper-focusing. So the downside to this is that for many people with ADHD, unless it's a subject or an area they really love, they can't focus energy into anything else that doesn't stimulate them. That's why mm. many lads with ADHD, like you said, will score very high grades in a few subjects, maybe two or three in school, but then fall off an absolute cliff in the rest so it could be two a's and then like seven u's or d's or e's yeah, yeah. so however the plus side is that when you do hyper focus you can work at a rate and achieve in a way that very few other people can do so how has hyper focusing helped and hindered your mental health and how did it help or hinder your music production ability too yeah with the music production when it happens it's useful you know i'm not a trained musician but you know, there's a couple of times which I have had hyper-focus when I've been putting a demo together. Everything just seems to click so easily. Yeah, and it just, it feels like a superpower. So even though you don't realise you're in it <laughs> until until someone tries to get you out of it. <laughs> you're like, I'm working for 16 hours straight. <laughs> yeah, when, when, it's when the phone rings and you're like... Yeah. Oh, it's Wednesday. What the, what, the fuck, Monday. What, the, what the fuck? Why is someone phoning me? It's like, leave me alone. Leave me alone. My anger, honestly, when I've got hyper-focus and, and, you know, things happen, any, any distraction to get me out of it is, it's God. I boil. Yeah. I have a very strange reaction. When it comes to diagnosis, like you said, you were diagnosed during the COVID-19 period and in 2021. Now, you said to me during this period, I lost my life compass and my direction. So 
Who's the Russ we meet at this point? And how did you go from this hugely difficult moment to getting your ADHD diagnosis? And how did it feel when you got that di- diagnosis as well? Okay, so for the last probably oof, for probably 15, 20 years of my life, I had a routine with my studio work. First of all, working with Jason and then working with James. More so with James, you know, we were in the studio, DJing, you know, and then we'd land back on a Sunday. Monday, we'd be back into the studio. And I had this routine for like 10, 12 years. And when that stopped, I think that was the moment. When I look back now, that was the moment that it really started to come through. Even at that point, I, you know, I, I was pretty lost. I didn't know what to do with myself, you know, because James had been the major boat steerer of the relationship. So, so when he was sort of taken away, my, my mind couldn't work out what it was going to do. And so, and this went on for quite a while and I moved to Ibiza, you know. That's one escapism. (laughs) No, 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 exactly. No, but no, but you know, because I, I, I was just so lost. I, I know what I'll do. I'll go to Pikes and I'll live well, there. <laughs> I, 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 had, I had a flat in Ibiza. And oh, I that was, was easy. Okay, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it, was, it wasn't like, yeah. I was like, okay. So I rented the house out and, and then went to Ibiza. But being in Ibiza, it was all right when you're with people. But in the winter when you're with no one. And also I just split up with a girlfriend as well. Mm-hmm. So my mind was just, you know, suicidal. You mm. name it. I had it. And then I moved back to the UK. I even went through a couple of relationships. I even left the relationship because I thought the girl was close to exposing me and my mental, you know, my mental state because I I was so, you know, I'm pretty scared Mm. of anyone finding out what I thought about myself. You know, I thought I was, yeah, mad. Mm. I thought I was mad, um, you know, and some of the things that I have in my everyday life, which are part of my ADHD, I, you know, I would never even dreamed they were associated. Never in a million years. So to even think that I had ADHD was never, you know, it never even came up until a friend's girlfriend who was in child mental health said to me, have you got ADHD? Was that quite quickly after she had met you? This was, was in lockdown and we were having the rule of six, the, right. the six, six bottles of wine in the garden. What a crazy time, <laughs> And we were just talking, you know, and I said about, you know, sometimes when I'm on telephone calls and my mind goes completely blank and, and, and I've not heard a word that the person on the other end of the phone has said to me. And I've sort of snapped back and I've not heard anything. Yeah, 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 I've, yeah, I've yeah. not heard it. I've not heard anything at all. Mm. And then she said to me, oh, you know, are you sure you've not got ADHD? And I was, and I was like, okay. And I, I thought about it, but I, I didn't read up on it. I didn't really look about anything to it. It was only, but I was having severe problems. And then one day I was at the computer and I sat for a whole day and did nothing. Literally stared at the screen, bit of doom scrolling, but that was it for about eight, nine hours. And I just turned around to my partner, Arena, and said, I really think I need to see someone. I think I've got mental problems. 
yeah, I think I've got, you know, I can smile about it. I think mean, that's another reaction to it, I think. I smile, laugh a little bit about it. But it's, If you, you laugh know, at your pain, you own it, Russell. That's what I say. Yeah, okay, well, that's good then. Then I, I most definitely own it. So, um, yeah, so that was when I went for the diagnosis. And, and obviously it was hard. I just contacted, I went through and, and found reviews on different clinics and, and whatnot and picked some Harley Street specialist. And, you know, because I, I think a, a diagnosis with a doctor with, with the NHS probably, I think, takes two, three, four years at times. And, you couldn't yeah, wait that long. I couldn't wait that long. No, no, I, I need to know. So we did the whole diagnosis. He sent all the forms out. All my members of my family had to fill in forms oh, about wow. me. Yeah, about yeah about their experiences with me. They a list of questions and stuff, and then obviously then it came back to in and I had to fill in a form, and then all the forms were posted in, and and then I did a about a three hour interview with him on uh, on Zoom. So then he came back with uh, combined ADHD. That was the diagnosis. How did you um, feel at the time? I was okay. I didn't really didn't really think about it it wasn't until later that day that my partner Rena and I we went onto the beach and we downloaded our first book on ADHD Rena was reading out one of the preface and she read out this particular passage of all these the different issues that you could mm-hmm. go through and I and I just broke down and, and she went that's you isn't it and I went yeah, ninety nine percent of that is me, and I and I yeah, and I was just that's when it was a relief. It just you came felt out. Seen. I, you felt yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I just yeah, yeah. But I just thought, well, I'm not fucking mad. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that really, because I, I really seriously thought, you know, for years that I was, and 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 I and I had, I had to hide it from everybody because, mm. yeah, yeah, because it wasn't normal. So. um yeah, that was the defining moment, I think. So from that really low point when you were staring at your computer to this feeling of validation, this relief of the diagnosis to now, what has life been like in those two years since you got that diagnosis, Russell? Has everything felt more clear? Have you done more reading? You know, I remember sending you Scattered Minds by Gabor Mate, which is another Yeah, yeah, yeah. ADHD I mean, I, 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 have pro- I have problems with reading. I'm good at getting read too. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, my my life's a lot better. I mean, obviously we're out of lockdown now, and things are getting back to normal in the world. But I'm glad of getting this because it helps me every day. It makes it, you know, you know, I was going through, I was doing things on cycles as you do ADHD sufferers. You know, you go just keep going through the same things, same mistakes, until one day, hopefully, you notice you're doing exactly the same fucking thing all the time uh, making the same mistakes in life and I had been you know in in respect of running away from relationships to protect myself you know hurting people myself and other people along the way yeah it's not a nice feeling so I've got the diagnosis I can help myself things is not not they're not as bad as they seem even though you know when I look at the the list of things i'm like bloody hell i've really got that much going on <laughs> um yeah yeah I, I, I feel better 
a lot better. I'm, it's a lot better for getting it out there. And it'll, and to be honest with you, it's, it's actually nice to talk about it because I've never talked about it. I've always been too scared to talk about it. When I got the diagnosis, I, I spoke with a lot of my friends and I think, you know, they got sick of it, <laughs> to be honest <laughs> with you. <laughs> uh, most of them couldn't really understand. And, you know, they were saying, well, you know, if someone gives you a list of a thousand things, you know, you're, you're going to have some of them, aren't you? And I'm like, yeah, but it's not like that. I said, oh, you know, this list, I've got 99%. I've got impulsivity, anxiety, rejection, sensitive dysphoria. I've got low self-esteem, forgetfulness, inattention, hyperactivity, executive dysfunction you know it's like (laughs) the list the list is endless i haven't yet gone to any groups because one thing i would like to know is what other people suffer with because i have no idea how how bad or how good my neurodivergence is because i've got all these things that i know you know i know some people are more inclined to not have combined yeah 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 so so yeah it'd be interesting to know how other people cope one thing i've always found and it's been one of the most surprising things actually doing this series and doing my behind the mic series for artists and bands is the amount of artists i've interviewed who either got diagnosed adhd or suspect they have it or at least display symptoms of it i'd have to do more research into this but there definitely seems to be a relationship between artistry and ADHD. Have you there spoken is. to any other artists? I know quite a few, and and I've actually become really good at diagnosis. <laughs> <laughs> um, funnily enough, yeah, I can catch people when I'm talking to them, and you know, if I get into deep conversation with people, and I've also found that you seem attracted to like-minded people, that people that have got mental health issues, you're sort of drawn to them. I've got a lot of time for people who are a little bit there's a lot of nutters out there we're all there's a lot of us out there we're all a little bit on that spectrum Uh, yeah yeah yeah, there's a lot a lot of nutters out there and i'm one of them um yeah and it's nice to be able to recognize it and have compassion and time for other people with it and as we reflect on your mental health journey mate similar question to the first topic what has this mental health journey taught you about yourself (sighs) god um, don't beat myself up. I'm, you know, my worst critic, and I've been beating myself up for years in my mind. I ruminate. Ruminating is one of my <laughs> worst things. You know, I ruminate on things. I can go. I'll go back ten, fifteen years, and I and, and I can go on something for for months. The stupid thing you said to someone yeah. in the tent. Yeah, 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 do you know what I mean? It's like, and it's, you know, be a little bit kinder to myself is probably the one thing I would say. We've come to our final topic of conversation, Russell, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests if we have time. It's a general natter and quickfire chat about mental health. So firstly, I think I'll know the answer to this question considering you're on holiday, but how is your mental health at the moment, mate? It's all right. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. I do I do have... It's always with me. Always. Okay. Yeah, always. Different days, different things. 
And what age do you think you were or remember you were when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? I... What age? 55. There's no right or wrong age, Russell. There's no right or wrong <laughs> no, age. No, 55. <laughs> 55 is when I realised that it was in my mind mm. and I, all these mistakes that I'd made because of my neurodivergence, obviously, had a, a few good things came out of it, but you know, but a lot, a lot, you know, a lot of shit, and I, and I, yeah, I didn't realize a lot of it was in my mind. And can you tell me about the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? So, who was it with? What did you say? And what impact did it have? Did it feel like this big, massive moment, or burden, or weight had been lifted, or did it feel like something very easy and normal to do? Uh, no, it wasn't not easy for me to do. To, <laughs> That's to, what to, most to, say. to even talk, you know, I, I have problems with social media. I, I hate social media. I can't yeah. do social yeah. media. And for someone who's an, an artist, that's not, <laughs> yeah. it's not really a good thing, is it? So I was a great uh, mental health platform as well. It's also something that I, that yeah. I should need to do better. But yeah, I struggle with it as well. Yeah, but I, my partner, Rena, was the person. She's a very, very good listener. And she's, you know, she's been the, the thing probably the one thing that's helped me through this the last couple of years and help me and help me understand it more really and what things do you find in life mate that trigger your mental health so it could be things people say to you it could be a sound a sensation being in a particular environment or have you not figured all of them out yet i haven't figured them all out yet i do have triggers i think uh mm, i think the biggest trigger for me is stress when I get stressed in any shape or form about anything, it knocks me sideways. Off your perch, um, yeah. Yeah, it knocks me off my perch, yeah. Mm. Prime example, you know, I get a phone call from Dino, who I work with, and, and he says, oh, you know, I, I can't come into the studio today. He says, you know, and he's phoning me at 10 to 8, and I'm just walking down the stairs, going out the door. And then I stand on the stairs for the next four hours, not knowing what to do with myself, not really knowing, and I'm like, I go upstairs and, and this is where I thought you've gone. Where, what have you been doing? I go, I've been standing on the stairs, not, not, knowing, not knowing what to do with myself. Because why? Dino's just cancelled me to go in the studio. And I'm like, I, I haven't got a clue what to do with myself now. My ne brain negative just, my brain change just, seems to be a trigger here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my, my, yeah. My, my brain just can't, it, it just goes, mm. yeah, bizarre, bizarre things. It is generally stress. Anything stress-related. And then conversely, what positive tools and methods have you used to improve your mental health? Which ones have worked for you and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? Ooh, exercise is probably a key. Lots Drinking litres of water helps. Really, really does help. You know, you read a lot of these books and you think, oh, you know, probably a load of crap, but it's not. <laughs> it, works, it, it works for me. It works for me. The, the exercise, the water... Breathing, breathing exercises do help me calm me and also give me a bit of space in my mind to try and rationalise things sometimes. But yeah, I mean, I'm reading a book on breathing, an article, and I'm going to look at the book on breathing at the moment. And I do a lot of yoga, so that's helping with the whole breathing. I'm just trying to breathe through my nose when I'm sleeping now apparently you know breathing through your mouth is, is not good for your ADHD 
Okay, don't, I mean, yeah, no, I don't know if I that's, know. I don't know if the jury's out on that yet. But yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I'm just apparently so. I'm just, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm just trying things. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, 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 I'm, I'm just trying things that which work for me. The whole breathing thing, mm. it does seem to work for me. You mentioned books there and breathing. What has been the best book you've read for your mental health? I call the mental health bibles. If you can't think of a book, maybe a yeah, TV got, show or anything else, or an album. I've got a book. It's um, Going Official by a guy called Ash Banks. Okay. Um, I just picked it up on Kindle. It, I haven't actually read the whole thing, but I've read what's appropriate key messages. To, to, yeah. for me. For me, no, for me, yeah. I've okay. gone through the different sections that, you know, obviously I've, I've gone through it and, and, and if I don't feel that relates to me, then I've skipped, skipped paragraphs. But yeah. it's, a, it's a really informative book that basically gives all the categories subcategories and breaks it down even you know into all your all your little quirks and kinks that you have so yeah it's it's been good for me and if there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health what would it be and why be kinder to yourself uh, yeah, but life is a roller coaster. Oh, we're going into Raymond Keating. We're Keating now. Yeah. It's all song. Well, my other one is life is a minestrone. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. I've got two questions left. The first one is, what do you love about yourself? God, my nose. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what do I love about myself? Um, I'm a good friend. I'm a good friend, a good partner now. I'm a better partner now than I've ever been throughout my life. So, yeah, I'm caring, loving. That's what I love about myself. Excellent, mate. I know you talked about self-esteem, so I wanted to ask that question because I wanted you to hear it and say it for yourself. So there yeah. We go. As a final question, mate, this is a very broad one, so you can answer it any way you want. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, that's the hardest part is getting men to, to talk. There needs to be quicker diagnosis. Mm. There needs to be more people available for someone to talk to, even anonymously. You know, that's the worst part is putting yourself out there. It's the hardest going, step. It's the yeah, biggest it's step the, and it's the hardest. Everything hard. after that is easy. That's yeah, the first step. The first step is always is. the hardest, yeah. Yeah, so giving people someone to reach out to is most important because, yeah, you don't feel like there's anybody. You don't Because you don't feel like there's anybody like you. <laughs> you know, what you're going through is unique, but it's not. There's millions of us. Russell, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been an absolute privilege for me to do this. You've been one of my dream guests for many years. Thank you so much for coming on Behind the Decks and talking to me, mate. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, that's all we've got time for on this dream guest episode of Behind the Decks. I want to say a massive, massive thank you to Russell from Freemasons for being my special guest on this episode and letting me go behind the decks with him. I was really struggling to actually pick my favourite Freemasons track to play us out, but for you listeners, I'm going to go with the classic where it all began 
with Fats and Small and Turnaround. So that will play us out in full and I'll put all of Freemason's streaming and social media links in the show notes as always. I will sign us off by saying thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review or give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, you can do so by going to our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk or you can go to our link tree, that's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk to find out more about all the other ways you can financially support Vent. Stay tuned for the next episode of Behind the Decks. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Things in-